There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. This is Dina Marie, the host of the Twisted Philly podcast. If you follow me on social media, you know the story I'm about to tell. It's a story of anarchy, but not in the UK. Anarchy in PA and in New York, and yes, in the UK for a little while, then back to PA and New York again. It's like the title of Bilbo Baggins' journal, There and Back Again. Although this journey does not have a happy ending. This is the story of Nancy Spungen. A daughter, a sister, a genius, a rebel, and a desperately tortured soul from the time of her birth, almost every day until the day she died. Her death was something she predicted. It was something she attempted multiple times throughout her short life, even before she was a teenager. It's the story of a young woman with whom I was a little enamored when I was a teenager. She obsessed over music. She lived in New York. She landed the ultimate bad boy. What girl wouldn't want that life? I guess maybe I should say what 80s teenager wouldn't want that life or that description of a life. Because Nancy Spungen's life was so much more, it was so much harder, not only on her, but her family, her parents, her siblings, and especially her mother, Deborah Spungen. I was 10 years old when I bought my first album with my own money. That was kind of a big deal to me. It was Off the Wall by Michael Jackson. See, I liked good boys too, not just the bad ones. I used my own birthday money and I felt so grown up buying my first album. It was different than the music I'd been listening to. Usually I listened with my dad to his albums like Jefferson Airplane, Pink Floyd, Zeppelin, and Springsteen. My taste in music was pretty diverse back then and actually it still is. The next two albums I bought were Pat Benatar's Crime of Passion and The Rolling Stones' Tattoo You. I was building quite a record collection, and then I started adding tapes, too, because, well, with tapes, I didn't need to use my dad's stereo system or worry that I'd fuck it up because it was like one of those incredible systems with enormous speakers and a diamond head needle on the record player, and tapes were cheaper so I could buy more. My dad was a Blondie fan, so I was a Blondie fan. I have to say that most of the music I listened to growing up was because of my dad. He had great taste in music. It was eclectic, too. We'd go from Chuck Mangione to the Doobie Brothers and then to Pavarotti. When I was 11 or 12, my dad had a business trip to London, and he asked me what I wanted him to bring me home. I said records. When he asked by whom, I said, I don't know, just something cool. So while he was overseas, he asked around, and he came home with a few Duran Duran LPs. I don't even remember if the band had hit the States by then. They probably had. These were singles, only one song on each album, and I played them to death. I was infatuated with John Taylor. Instantly, my favorite musician in any band became bass players. To this day, I cannot sit within five rows of the stage when I go to a Duran Duran show because... I am actually afraid I will try to get on stage to meet him. Yeah, I'm kind of obsessed. I'm not going to take you through every year and every band and every album, but 
I understand how sometimes the only thing in the world that can make life bearable is music, especially your favorite song by your favorite band. I understand fantasies about meeting your idols and telling them how much their words moved you, comforted you, and even saved you. When I think about teenage me, pre-teen me, and post-high school me, there are some aspects of Nancy Spungen's life I absolutely understand. In 1986, a movie was released about her relationship with Sid Vicious. Now, I didn't see it when it was first released. I saw it a few years later. Someone had it on VHS, and I was mesmerized. It was torture watching their relationship. That movie is where I became infatuated with Gary Oldman. And just like John Taylor, I'm still infatuated with Oldman and with bass players. Now, Oldman played Sid Vicious, and Nancy was... Well, Chloe Webb was an annoying, bitchy, drug-addicted Nancy, but I felt like something was missing. That couldn't be all there was to Nancy, and quite honestly, in defense of Chloe Webb, it's impossible to show up on the same level as Gary Oldman. But there had to be more to the story of Nancy than a stripper and a groupie and an addict. It wasn't until my 20s that I learned of a book written by Nancy's mother, Deborah Spungen. It's called And I Don't Want to Live This Life. That title is from a poem Sid wrote about Nancy, a poem he enclosed with a letter he sent Deborah Spungen after Nancy died. It was one of a few letters he sent Deborah, a woman he called Mum, someone he called his only friend, the mother of the woman he killed. The man police told Deborah and Frank, Nancy's father, had killed their daughter, considered her mother his only friend. The first time I read Deborah's book, I was in my 20s. And I was dating a musician, one I would later marry and then even later divorce. I realized there was so much more to the story Hollywood wanted to tell. So much more than what was in our local Philadelphia newspapers. She wasn't nauseating Nancy. She was a beautiful little girl born prematurely, with unbelievable complications at birth that were possibly at the root of the emotional struggles that plagued Nancy her entire life. The second time I read Deborah's book was a few months ago. I remembered much of the story, and story isn't even the right word because it's not a work of fiction. Although, dear God, there were times in this book that I wished it was. When I read the book again, I wept, and I actually reread it just this week, and I cried again, because now I read it as a mother. I wasn't reading it as a young adult, a little infatuated with the girl who knew Blondie and dated one of the most famous yet least talented punk musicians of our time. I read it as a mother who knows the pain of almost losing your child before they've taken their first breath in this world. I read it as a mother who, like Deborah Spungen, didn't know if I'd be bringing my daughter home. I read it remembering those same fears in the early years of your child's life, watching for signs and symptoms that something is wrong, waiting for some long-term effects of nearly losing your child at birth. I read it feeling guilty that my daughter has very few issues stemming from her birth conditions. I read it feeling more grateful than ever that my daughter is one of the kindest, most compassionate, considerate, and affectionate people I know. And shit, with me for a mom, you'd think she'd have more attitude. I read it looking back at the teenager I was, sometimes full of anger that others didn't understand, locking myself in my room for hours, occasionally smashing something to expel whatever pain was residing inside me that I didn't even understand. I recognized Deborah, and I recognized Nancy, because there's a little bit of both of these women in me. But the big difference is I didn't have to bury my daughter. 
So much of my research comes from a variety of different sources. Of course, Deborah's book, decades-old copies of the Philadelphia Bulletin and the Philadelphia Inquirer, scores of old news interviews, and a documentary released 30 years after Sid's death. Other than Deborah's book, so much of the story of Sid and Nancy is about Sid, about Sid Vicious and John Simon Ritchie and John Simon Beverly after that. This isn't the story of Sid and Nancy. Yes, eventually Sid will enter this story. But I want this to be the story of Nancy Spungen. Murder. The American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language defines it as the unlawful killing of one human being by another, especially with malice aforethought. The mother of a murdered child has a different definition. The blackest hell, accompanied by a pain so intense that even breathing becomes an unendurable labor. I know, I am the mother of a murdered child. It was the late 50s in Philly, long before the punk movement was a glimmer in Malcolm McLaren's eye, long before the Beatles arrived in America, life was simple and sort of easy, at least on the surface. Deborah and Frank Spungen were newlyweds. They were a young couple. They were both going to school in Philly. They dreamed of moving to New York, having exciting careers, and they made a decision to wait to start a family until the time was right, until they'd lived a little as man and wife and established themselves as professionals. What's that expression, man plans and God laughs? Well, he laughed all right because Deborah got pregnant right away. And those dreams of fancy careers in New York City were put on hold. Nancy Spungen was born on February 22nd in 1958. She was early. Deborah wasn't due for over a month, but as is often the case, babies come whenever they're ready. Nancy may have been ready to come into this world, but man, did she have a hard time of it right out of the gate. Nancy Spungen was born cyanotic, with the cord wrapped around her neck. On top of that, she was jaundiced. Now, jaundice is something that can occur in newborns. It's not uncommon, but Nancy's case was extreme. Jaundice occurs when the body breaks down red blood cells, and a byproduct of that process is something called bilirubin. Normally, bilirubin is removed from a baby's body through placenta, but in Nancy's case, she didn't just have an excessive amount of bilirubin in her body. She was suffering from something called ABO incompatibility. This is an extreme version of excessive bilirubin. So hematology specialists were called in, and they recommended that Nancy have her blood type changed. Yeah, you heard that right. This tiny newborn baby had all of her blood removed through a series of transfusion to change her blood type. All of this happened within 48 hours of entering this world. And this was 1958. I mean, doctors were considered gods. Nobody asked questions, especially not a 20-year-old woman who was unconscious during childbirth and intimidated by all of these specialists telling her only what they thought she needed to know. Nancy survived the treatment. She came home to a pink crib and two loving parents. And she cried. She screamed. She screamed morning, noon, and night. She was the sort of baby that nothing seemed to comfort her. She didn't want to be cuddled, but leaving her to her own devices and cry it out didn't work either. 
It was as if the entire world was just too bright and too loud, or she knew she was different, even as an infant, and didn't know how to tell anyone. By the time Nancy was three months old, her pediatrician prescribed phenobarbital to calm her. Just a drop or two on the tongue. Phenobarbital is a sedative that slows the brain and the nervous system. By six months old, her doctor increased the dosage in the hopes that Nancy would stop screaming all night long. Around this time, Nancy also demonstrated symptoms of a possible neurological condition. Her tongue was always hanging out of her mouth, and she developed a lazy eye. But time and time again, just like with her screaming, her hyperactivity, tense physical reactions to any sort of comfort, doctors told her parents she'll grow out of it. And really, who were they to question? But Deborah did question it. A pattern was starting to develop. Deborah Spungen would reach out for support, guidance, for answers or diagnoses. And every time she would be told, Nancy's just energetic. She has a temper, but nothing we don't see in other children. She'll grow out of it. Just love her. Everything will be fine. And it was never fine. For almost 20 years, nothing was fine in Nancy Spungen's life. And by proximity, almost nothing was fine for her family. Imagine planning every event around one family member. Every meal. Every vacation. Every decision. Now, today, in 2017, you're probably thinking, oh, hell no, no three-year-old or seven-year-old or 10-year-old is going to tell me what to do. A little child is not going to run my house. Kids need discipline and boundaries, and they'll be fine. And that's what the Spongens thought, and that's what they tried. There's one particular story about Nancy when she was barely three years old that sets the tone for what life would be like almost every day with this smart, beautiful little girl who was filled with pain and rage. Nancy wanted her mother to go outside and play with her, and Deborah was making the bed, and she told Nancy they'd go out as soon as she was finished, something that would take just a couple of minutes. Nancy began screaming, Now, you will come out with me now. And at first, that doesn't seem unusual for a toddler, especially if your toddler is going through the terrible twos and threes. But here's what became troubling and even a little terrifying. Nancy was incredibly verbal at a young age. Her IQ was highly advanced, even probably considered gifted on some scales. She began to scream at her mother that if she didn't come outside now, she would take every article of clothing out of Deborah's closet and her drawers. And she named every piece of clothing, every dress, every skirt and blouse, the color, and threatened to get scissors and cut her mother's clothing to shreds. Then Nancy told her mother she would take every shred of clothing and put it in the street so cars could run over it. And she repeated this mantra, screaming it over and over while she recited the contents of Deborah's closet and drawers without hesitation. Nancy Spungen was barely three when this happened. Deborah Spungen knew there was something wrong with her daughter. A mother, a mother just knows there's an instinct that's unlike anything else. She researched traumatic birth events and learned that in many cases, children suffer long-term developmental issues, including emotional issues, aggression, plus fine motor skills, vision impairment, along with a list of so many other issues as a result of a traumatic birth event. I spent some time researching the same thing 16 years ago after my daughter was born. 
she suffered a number of traumatic injuries. She was deprived of oxygen. And I knew whatever challenges she faced, she would be facing them with me. When I was finally allowed to see her after she was born, I begged God to let me keep her and that I would do everything in my power to make sure she had the best life I could possibly give her. My daughter never suffered the emotional issues that Nancy did. We started physical therapy within a few weeks after her birth, which probably prevented long-term fine motor issues. Somehow, even after being deprived of oxygen, not only is she fine, but she's smart. She's considered gifted, which I don't really give a fuck about. I just want her to be happy. And she is. She always has been. She was one of the happiest babies I've ever seen. But in 2000, I had so many more resources available to me than Deborah Spungen did when Nancy was born in 1958. Something that breaks my heart is Deborah made a similar promise to Nancy when she was born, when she was suffering her own agony over her daughter's life and future. And it was a promise she desperately tried to keep, but Nancy made it almost impossible. She wasn't born at the turn of the millennium. She grew up in a time when people implicitly trusted their doctors and didn't trust mental health professionals. Mental health support was what Nancy desperately needed, and it was almost impossible to obtain. So years passed, Frank and Deborah had two more kids. They had a daughter named Susie and a son named David. Nancy started school, she skipped grades, she was beyond her peers academically, but she couldn't make friends. She fought with everyone. She fought with her parents. She fought with her siblings. She fought with kids at school. She fought with neighborhood kids. And these weren't like mere arguments, you know, a little sibling rivalry. Nancy manipulated everyone in her family. Family outings turned into screaming matches with Nancy, breaking her own belongings, trashing her bedroom, trying to hurt her siblings, cursing at her parents. And I mean cursing like way worse than I curse. And that was at seven and eight years old. Deborah and Frank believed Nancy was disturbed and needed more help than a pediatrician could provide. They had her evaluated at a guidance clinic in Philadelphia, but they were again told, you're coddling her or you're spoiling her or the opposite, you need to love her more or she's a little more active than children her age, but that's because she's so smart. She's ahead of her peers. That's why she can't make friends. Deborah knew there was so much more going on besides that. But there were no resources. The city of Philadelphia and probably most of the country in the early to mid-60s just simply weren't equipped for mental health issues in young children. There was nothing the Spongens could do other than live minute by minute, day by day, as Nancy's emotional struggles took a toll on the entire family. In 1968, when Nancy was 10, the Spongen family moved out of the city into a suburb northwest of Philadelphia called Huntington Valley. At first, the move seemed to suit everyone so well, including Nancy. She was doing well in school. She made a few friends. But soon, the same destructive behaviors and patterns set in. She shared a room with her younger sister, Susie, and one afternoon, she destroyed half the bedroom, Susie's half. While Deborah was cleaning up the mess, Nancy took the family cat. She put it in a bag and decided she wanted to drop it from the top of the stairwell to see if the cat would land on its feet if it was inside a bag. Deborah managed to convince Nancy that that was a bad idea. But through these episodes, Nancy would display something that her family called that look. Her eyes would glaze over, and it appeared as if she wasn't connected with anyone around her, or she wasn't connected to reality. 
Nancy had delusions and hallucinations. When she was very small, she believed a rabbit was biting her in her sleep. She believed this so vehemently that Deborah had to bandage her legs. And as she got older, the rabbit became a shark, and Nancy would scream that she could see sharks in the corner of her room. And after these episodes, she wouldn't remember what happened. Sometimes she wouldn't even recognize her mother or father. After the incident with the cat, Deborah found a clinic that agreed to test Nancy. And again, her IQ and intellect were superior. But this time, unlike the diagnoses when she was very young, the doctors offered Nancy's parents more insights about her behavior. Nancy suffered feelings of insecurity and inadequacy. It was likely due to the trouble she still experienced with fine motor coordination. She was super smart, but sometimes executing simple tasks were really tough for her. She built up extreme tension inside, and she was unable to control her aggression. She struggled with internal controls, and for the first time, a medical professional said these conditions could possibly be related to an organic origin, which could mean an imbalance in the brain chemistry or, God forbid, a tumor or something even related to her traumatic birth events. And even with all of this, with all of this insight, what did the doctors tell her family? They said Nancy's issues were the result of marital troubles or problems in the home. And unless the Spongens fixed their family dynamic, Nancy would never be okay. And also, you know, I've been pointed out somehow we must have been bad parents. You know, people like to think that because they don't want to think if they look at me and I look like I'm okay and I'm a good person. How did this happen to me? Maybe it's going to happen to them. And then people get more embarrassed and, you know, they think, you know, they're before the grace of God go I, but they don't want to admit it. Throughout her preteen years, the violent episodes didn't just continue, they escalated. Nancy's attacks weren't only thrust outward upon her family, but on herself as well. She would bash her head into walls. She would pull her hair out by the roots. On top of physical assaults, there were verbal assaults. Her siblings were fucking crybabies. Her mother was a fucking bitch, and her father was a fucking cocksucker. Nancy was filled with pain for reasons she didn't understand, and... She couldn't articulate it. The only way she knew how to express herself was with aggression. The one shining light in Nancy's life was music. It started with the musical Hair, then the Beatles and the Doors and Hendrix and Joplin's All the Greats from the 60s and 70s. The problem was Nancy obsessed about her music. She only ever played her music at ear-splitting volume, and that disturbed the entire house. And whenever anyone asked her to turn it down, they got a fuck off for good measure. When Nancy was 11, she tried to kill herself. Nancy was in therapy. The entire family was in therapy for Nancy and for themselves. And her father had a short business trip where he could bring Deborah. So they checked with Nancy's therapist. They were so reluctant to leave. They wanted to know what she thought about, and she thought it would be great to leave the kids with a sitter. She felt it would not only be okay, but it would demonstrate to Nancy that they trusted her. They trusted that she was working hard to get better. So Frank and Deborah hired a sitter, and they also had Nancy's grandmother, Deborah's mom, spend the weekend just for good measure while Frank and Deborah were in New York. Friday, everything was fine. Saturday, everything was fine. When they arrived home Sunday morning, they found Nancy in her bathrobe, sitting on her bicycle in the driveway. And she was in that detached state. She'd climbed out onto her roof and tried to jump off, screaming that she wanted to die. Now, the babysitter managed to get her back in the house, 
And as soon as she was wrestled inside, Nancy grabbed a pair of sitters and tried to stab her babysitter. When Frank and Deborah got home, everything had settled down. Nancy was in a disassociated state, but her sitter and her grandmother were a wreck. Deborah called the therapist, and the doctor said, she's just acting out. So they brought Nancy in for a session, and she almost destroyed everything in her doctor's office. That fall, Nancy refused to return to school. What was the doctor's advice? Make her go. Drag her if you have to. So her parents did just that. They dragged her out of her room. She had to be dragged down the steps. They took her to the guidance counselor at school, and then they left. And Nancy ran away. The school declared they didn't feel equipped to deal with someone with Nancy's special needs. And further evaluation from Nancy's therapist and the clinic where she worked resulted in a diagnosis of schizophrenia. At 11 and a half years old, it was devastating, but, you know, in a way it was a relief because they finally had a diagnosis. And with a diagnosis, maybe there could be treatment and there could be hope. But the Spongins didn't have a diagnosis because the clinic never told her parents they diagnosed her as schizophrenic. The Spongins didn't find out until after Nancy died and her mother was able to get copies of her medical records from all the doctors and therapists and clinics. No, in 1969, the Spongins were told, yes, Nancy is worse, and it's your fault. If you want her to get better, fix your family. What do you do with that? Suicide attempts before she was 12, violent outbursts against her family every day, verbal abuse every day, assaulting her mother with a hammer. The stories are endless. And then you're told, if you want to fix your child, fix your family. Deborah and Frank knew that Nancy had to go to school and they had to get her into a place that could address her emotional needs but still provide an education. And they finally found one. It was called the Devereux School in Connecticut. And for a time, Nancy thrived there. She didn't want to go, but once she got there, it was the right place for her. She did well academically. She made friends. She had a job on the school campus and she spent most of her time there except for a few weeks over the summer. Everyone was in agreement, her parents, her therapist at Devereux, that if she continued improving, she would probably only need to spend one more year there, and then she could return to traditional school and her home in suburban Philly. So Nancy came home for summer break, and things weren't as bad as they'd been the last time she was home. When she returned to Devereux in Connecticut, everything changed. The staff changed. The occupancy changed. It had doubled. Nancy was sharing a room. The headmistress changed. The husband and wife team who ran the school had been transferred to another location. Even the therapist that she saw every week wasn't available as often. And immediately, these changes threw Nancy into a tailspin. She reverted back to her previous behaviors as if she had not progressed at all. It was really a devastating setback for the family. The Spongins had placed so much hope in Devereaux. Nancy had something to look forward to, and her condition made it impossible to rebound from so much change in her routine. And it was devastating for another reason, too. Life in Huntington Valley without Nancy had improved. As sad as it was for Deborah and her family to admit, with Nancy gone most of the time, their home was peaceful. She and Frank were able to work on their marriage, on their relationship. Susie and David were able to have friends over. They were doing better in school. The second year at Devereaux in Connecticut was a nightmare. Nancy made multiple attempts to run away. There were violent outbursts, stealing. By the end of the year, everyone agreed Nancy was in no way prepared to return home or go to public school, but they wouldn't let her stay at the location in Connecticut. 
So Nancy was transferred to another school in the same program. This one was in Pennsylvania and not that far from where she lived. It was in a part of the city called the Main Line. So maybe this made it a lot easier for the Spongens when they wanted to visit, and it made it easy for Nancy to run away and hitchhike home. She wasn't yet 14 when she started there, and most of the kids were much older than her. She got more than an education there. Nancy got addicted to drugs, and she funded her addiction by stealing her mother's jewelry when she came home for unexpected and unapproved visits. Nancy made two more suicide attempts before she turned 16. The first was superficial. The second one almost killed her. She cut her arm so deeply that she almost severed a tendon. She'd lost so much blood by the time she was found, the doctors in the ER told her parents she would have died if she'd been found five minutes later. Each time she ran away, she was brought back to Devereaux, and each time she tried to commit suicide, she was brought back to Devereaux. The visits home were few and far between, and each one was a nightmare. In 1964, Nancy Spungen graduated, even though she was so young. She was only 16. But she got accepted at University of Colorado in Boulder. Her parents were terrified to let her go. But at the same time, they were hopeful that a new environment and a demonstration of trust would give Nancy what she needed to succeed in the world. Nancy had to attend a summer session because she was so young, and she thrived. She got along with her roommate. She loved Colorado. And when she came home at the end of the summer for a few weeks before fall semester, things were better. Not too long after Nancy returned to Colorado, she was arrested. On the surface, it seemed that she was involved in a scam to steal ski equipment. According to Nancy, she thought she was just holding skis for some friends. What it really turned out to be was a drug sting, and Nancy was forced to leave school. She had nowhere else to go, so she returned home. And the nightmare resumed. Nancy stole her mother's car. She crashed it off a highway exit ramp where it flipped down an embankment. She could have been killed. She would be gone for days at a time in Philly, chasing the music scene. She met Aerosmith and Queen. She met Bad Company. She met so many bands. She got high with them or with friends. She jumped from one drug to another, lewds, then heroin. She claimed to have slept with most of the musicians she met. She thought sex was nothing. And she had no issues telling her mother or her sister about her escapades, although both her mom and friends of hers wondered how much was actually true and how much was made up for shock value or to impress other people. She brought home guys. She did drugs in her bedroom. She tried to turn her siblings onto drugs. She basically did everything she could to show anyone that she didn't give a fuck about what they thought of her. And when her parents tried enforcing rules of any kind, there was so much verbal abuse, there were threats of assault, or even worse. One night towards the end of summer, when her brother and sister returned from summer camp, the family planned a dinner out. Nancy didn't like the choice of restaurant, so she flipped her shit. Her parents didn't give in. They said, fine, stay home. So she threatened to get guys from Philly to come out and destroy the house while the family was out. She said they would break the fucking furniture, pour paint all over everything, smash the windows, and destroy the entire fucking house. Everything was intact when they've returned home, but that was the turning point. As hard as it was, Deborah and Frank knew that Nancy could not continue living with them. So they offered to let her move to New York. Nancy was shocked, and they told her they know how much she loved it, they know how much she wants to be involved in music, and that was a place for her. They agreed to pay for her apartment and expenses for about six months, and if she got a job, they'd help her for another six months after that if she needed it. And Nancy was ecstatic. 
She planned on getting a job in the music industry, how or what she didn't know. She spent weeks picking out old furniture, deciding what she was going to pack and take with her to New York. And for the first few weeks, things were fantastic. Then the phone calls started. She'd been mugged and someone stole her rent money. Mom, can you please send me money? When her parents offered to send the money to her landlord, she cursed them and hung up on them. Then she was robbed. She had no money for groceries. So Deborah went up to New York every other week and bought fresh groceries. She took Nancy out to eat. She made sure she had whatever she needed. And each time she visited, Nancy's appearance worsened. The condition of the apartment worsened. And then Deborah saw the track marks on the inside of Nancy's arms and the back of her hands. When she was in New York, Nancy got a job as a dancer to support herself, which Deborah knew would likely lead to hooking. Nancy's addiction had gotten so bad, she got fired because customers couldn't stand to look at the track marks. By some miracle, Nancy got herself into a methadone program, and it stuck. She got healthy. She took care of herself. She could even pay her rent. She was able to dance again. And no, her family wasn't happy about how she was supporting herself, but Nancy was happy, and for, like, the first time in forever, she was healthy. New York in the 70s was an incredible time for music, and just like she did in Philly, Nancy threw herself into the scene. She wasn't a groupie. I know that may be hard to understand because it seems like she fits the construct of a groupie, hanging out with bands, sleeping with band members, wanting to date a band member. But Nancy had this innate ability to understand music and musicians. She knew who was going to blow up before they were famous. She knew who could move a generation. She was friends with Debbie Harry and told everyone she knew that Debbie was going to be a big deal long before the country was listening to her music. And that's one of the aspects of her life. And her is a person that captivated me in the late 80s, a decade after her death. She was fucking cool and brilliant. And she couldn't handle herself or her addictions because, fuck, if she had, she could have taken over as a music industry mogul. Like, I truly believe that about her. Around the same time that Nancy was in New York, the punk movement had grown legs in the village at places like CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. One of the most influential and successful punk bands in the U.S. at the time was a group called the New York Dolls. If you don't know that band, go listen to them after you finish this episode. They were a mix of hard rock that bordered on punk, and their sound was so unique, it didn't really fit into either category. The guys dressed like Ziggy Stardust, and the lead singer David Johansson looked like Mick Jagger. These guys were like living, breathing liquid acid. Nancy had a short relationship with the drummer, a guy named Jerry Nolan, and Jerry's name will come up again a little later, along with some of the other original members of the Dolls. To Nancy, it was a relationship, but to Jerry, it was probably just a regular hookup. And like bands are known to do, guys came and went. Some left for solo projects, some left because they got pissed off at one another. Jerry Nolan left for London, and there were so many artists from New York in that 70s pre-punk scene heading to the UK. Nancy was broken over this, and she begged and begged her parents for money to go to London. She wanted Deborah to cash in a $1,500 savings bond that had been a gift from her grandmother. And eventually Deborah relented. I mean, what could she do? Nancy constantly told people she wanted to die. She repeatedly tried to take her own life. So what would holding on to a savings bond do to extend Nancy's life? Absolutely nothing. Her mom sent her $500 and paid for her move to London. Almost as soon as she set foot in London, Nancy met Sid Vicious. And that's where I'm going to take a break for a moment. I didn't plan on releasing this as two episodes. I didn't 
plan on this being as big of an episode as it is, but once I get in front of the mic, the story just, like punk, grows legs and takes on a life of its own. And Nancy's story is so big and it feels so important to me that I need to catch my breath. I'm not the sort of single host that can just keep talking for over an hour. I mean, you guys know that. I'm sure you can tell this one is hitting me as a mom, as a music junkie, as an 80s girl who wound up dating and marrying a musician, although certainly not a famous one, and someone who swore off musicians for the rest of my life. I need to catch my breath. But the good thing is, I will release these two episodes simultaneously, so there is next to no delay from one to the other. For me, there's a day between, but for you, you just have to hit play again. I'm not even going to say ciao yet, because I'll be right back. Yeah, he just, he didn't like me because I was a junkie. He tried to keep me instead apart for months and months and months. Like, we had to keep the clandestine secret, everything. And um, finally he just gave up because he couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. So he just kept saying, look, I want to hang around with who I want to hang around with. I don't have to stay in my place who I want to stay in my place. And you're not going to tell me you're not to. So just fuck off. And he just gave up. So now I guess we're on speaking terms again. Please try and wake up. Do you want to make a cup of coffee? Yes, I'll make a cup of coffee. Will you try and fucking wake up, please?